HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 150 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I think every single one of them is tuning in to Tech Bytes, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. Typically, we have people sitting in the studio with mics on, talking about their business or trends. But this episode is something special. Earlier this year, I moderated a panel at General Assembly in New York City on the future of food. And it was a great conversation with a full panel of six different companies. And it was such an engaging conversation with a great Q&A from the audience after. We thought it would be a great idea to play the recording for you here. It's kind of long, so we broke it into two parts. This is part one of General Assembly Future of Food panel, recorded in New York City in January 2019. On the panel are people representing Meal Pal, The Farmer's Dog, Martha and Marley Spoon, Slice Life, and Food 52. So stay with us and listen to the first part of the panel. So first we have Robin Tang, who is from a company called Meal Plan. Come on down. We have Eric, Senior Brand Director from The Farmer's Dog. Yes, so many, so many, uh, not enough vowels. A lot of consonants. Will you say your last name for us? See, I was, I was good not to try that one without a net. Next, we have Jennifer Aronson, who's the culinary director of Martha and Marley Spoon, also co-founder. Yeah? We have Ilar Sella, who's the founder and CEO of Slice. When I say Slice, how many people think pie and how many people think pizza? Okay, because we're in New York. Okay. And we have Grace... I'm going to have you say your last name. <laughs> She's the VP of Digital Marketing from Food52. Thank you. Do you want to sit? Okay. How's everybody doing tonight? So we are slated to go until about 8.30. I did this panel last year, and we had a packed house as well, and people had a lot of questions at the end. Do you feel like you might have some questions at the end? If you do, I want to make sure that we leave maybe like at least a half hour to kind of get them all in. Last, last year, it was about 45 minutes or so, so I want to make sure we can do that. People feeling curious? Yes? No? Excellent. I got a thumbs up. Okay. You get, to, you get to get the mic first. 
So we have a great panel of people up here. It's the future of food. The future of food means a lot of different things. Um, sometimes we think about like techie food, you know, astronaut food, things being made in a different way from different things. Uh, I did a show with, you know, non-dairy plant-based butter or upcycled barley flour from the brewing process. I mean, that's the future of food. Some people think the future of food is, you know, Amazon delivery, getting something to your apartment in 45 minutes by a drone. Some people think the future of food is how we're going to eat in 2050 and feed all the billions of people in the world. I would love to hear from all of our panelists um, what they, when, when they think of the future of food, what that means for them. And that can either be personal or that can be from a business point of view if there's something around the office you guys have really been focused on is like the future or if, you know, future of food or maybe that's just what you're going to eat when you get out of here at 8.30. And maybe we'll just start at the end and work our way back. Hi, thanks. Um, yeah, so I'll start with just talking about MealPal. Um, so MealPal, it was actually born out of thinking about the future of food and what the different dynamics in the industry are and how that um, translates into what a new business opportunity might be like um, and what eating intelligently, like we use the term eating intelligently um, in, in MealPal, um, what that means. So one, uh, consumers, they don't want to spend a lot of time going out to get their food. A lot of people are eating lunch at their desks, so you want to kind of just grab and go. So people are increasingly wanting convenience. They're spending less and less time at their, uh, on their lunch hour. Two, um, prices are rising uh, in terms of labor costs. So minimum wage prices are going up. Um, costs continue to rise, but uh, so restaurants are definitely feeling a lot of pressure. Um, but customers, they still don't want to pay more for food. Like, everyone still wants to pay the same price as before. Um, and then uh, three, you still don't want to compromise on the taste. You want to have really delicious food. Um, so that's kind of where MealPal came about. MealPal is a subscription service where you can get lunch for as little as $6 per meal from thousands of restaurants. You reserve your meal in advance, you pick up your meal, you skip the line when you get your food, so you're not waiting in line at like Sweet Green or, or Chopped, you, you skip the line entirely and pick up your food for $6. Uh, and you get the same menu items that you would normally um, from these restaurant partners. So. so the future of food at MealPal is finance, convenience, and economics. And yeah, pretty yeah, much. it's, uh, it's so affordability, but still having delicious... Um, and convenient food. So Eric, what does the future of food mean to you? Uh, so I guess I'm the non-human eater representative here. <laughs> so at, at the Farmer's Dog, um, for us, the future of food is fresh. And I suppose for humans, that's not particularly novel. But uh, for dogs who for the past many decades um, have been fed kind of commercially processed, uh, preservative-fueled, uh, extruded food uh, kibble. I, I think people are eating that also. I mean, don't. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> they are. Um, but not kind of for every meal of every day of their lives. Um, so for us, it's about finding ways of uh, making real, fresh, recognizable food um, affordable and accessible uh, for, for dog people everywhere. Um, and what's fun about dogs is you have a bit more room to play with in terms of you know, cuts of meat that we may not find palatable or appetizing, but are perfectly uh, healthy and nutritious and delicious for dogs. Uh, we can play around with alternative proteins like insects, which some dog food brands are doing uh, in the UK. Uh, but it's all about kind of finding that harmony between dog, earth, uh, human in, in an affordable, accessible way. Cricket protein is a big food trend for people yes. right now also as an alternative protein source. There's cricket flowers and bars and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, and if you go to a, a regular food market in Oaxaca or Mexico City, you'll, mm -hmm. you can eat them. They're delicious. <laughs> okay. Jennifer, what does the future of food mean around your office or for you? Uh, yeah, well, for meal kits, it's pretty much the same as we're talking with MealPal, um, except I would say 
you know, definitely considering um, convenience for people who are very time crunched. So how do I get dinner on the table? Um, also considering health. I, I want to know what's going into my food. I don't want to just order out. I, wanna, I want to be cooking, um, and I want to choose my meals, cook them myself, serve my family. Um, there's that element of pride there as well. Um, and then also there's, there's food waste to consider. So I think at Martha and Marley Spoon, we, we really have a desire to replace supermarkets who have a huge amount of food waste every single day, every single week. And um, because we send our customers exactly what they need to cook, we're really cutting down immensely on the food waste angle. The statistic from the Food and Ag Organization at the United Nations from last year, I believe, is 1.3 billion tons of food is wasted every year annually mm-hmm. yep. in the I, world. I 1.3 billion with a B, that's billions, tons of food, which is staggering. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that, that is the nice thing about a meal kit. You order it. Um, you cook it, and you're only throwing away, you know, the, the bag that it came in. Um, and so that food waste goes right down. There's no more rotting parsley in your drawer and wilting celery, bunch of celery after you use one stock. You know, you, you use it all. Alar, what does the future of food mean? Yeah, um, great to be here. Thank you for having me. How many people have heard of Slice? Raise of hands. Great, so I don't have to go into that. Um, And what we do is we work with now over 11,000 small business pizza restaurants around the country to make their products and food and authentic pizza easy, accessible, and ultimately more rewarding for both the eater and and the maker, which would be the the restaurant owner. Um, For me, the future of food is all about really food and has nothing to do with technology in terms of what we see and feel. I think we forget that at the end of the day, people eat food and not technology. And so technology has gotten so in the way, uh, and it's our job to really just elevate just authentic, quality food and make sure that technology is actually never, ever felt. Uh, but the future of food is just really about authenticity, uh, variety, and, and local quality. And that's really what we, what we aim to champion. Awesome. Wow, this is a good starter question. Um, <laughs> Um, Coming from the perspective of Food52, so we're a food and home website, originally started off as a food community and involved into a commerce business, so content, um, community, and commerce are basically the three pillars of our business, and or our brand, I should say, and something that we talk about a lot in different forms is accessibility and all the different manifestations around that when it comes to food, so it could either be how accessible are the ingredients that we're featuring in our recipes? It could be even amongst, you know, obviously we need to eat food <laughs> to live. Uh, it's also a commodity and it's also something that's so deeply personal. Um, and we have our point of view, but also how do we bring in other diff- different perspectives so that when we're speaking about food or not speaking to just one particular audience, it can really hook into what may be universal, even if it's about a particular culture. Um, and just... The community and how community how you can build communities around food and how you can build a virtual community around food, which is basically the basis of the business. Um, so that question of accessibility and what it means and how it keeps redefining itself has been sort of a big, big part of our brand. Those are all great answers and gives everyone a little bit of an insight into the different points of view of these individual companies. I note, though, that all of the future of food answers are actually encompassing ideas and characteristics and traits about food that have been important to people basically since they've been eating food. Feeding your family something fresh, not being wasteful, economical, um, something you like, something that's authentic, something you share with a community. These are things that people have been doing when with their food for you know thousands of years as long as there have been people eating food with other people. So I would go back through uh, and, and ask if, if people have a thought about what specifically makes 
you know, your business or the way we consume food today, what's the future element to it? Is it simply just the delivery system of the technology? Is it the discovery? Is it just we are also celebrating the 10th anniversary of the iPhone now? So has consumer behavior just changed so much that everything we do just is built on this tech layer? Or is it not just futuristic? Is this just the, the new telephone or the new cart and buggy that's delivering something or the new refrigerator? Are we really in the future or is it, you know, just... Same? Anybody? I'm happy to answer. Um, I would say you're exactly right. You know, for what, what we're doing in the meal kit space is trying to um, get people back into the kitchen cooking again. Um, and so the, the future there is that we're, uh, by the convenience of sending them exactly what they need, their mise en place, then they're, um, we're enabling them to do just that. You know, whereas it, life has gotten so crazy and busy, and how do you sort out every single meal every single night? Um, so it's 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 bringing them back to what they want to be doing by cooking, um, and just giving them the tools to be able to do it. Do you think the meal kit is the new brownie mix? <laughs> I mean, for um, people who you know maybe we don't think about things quite so much because we're so used to it, but there was a point in time when Betty Crocker and Duncan Hines debuted cake mix in the supermarket. And it was a revolutionary thing because prior to that, you had to get all the ingredients and make everything from scratch. And when they debuted the cake mix in a box, all you had to do was add water. And people hated it because it was primarily purchased by women who were homemakers and part of the pride in their home that you were talking about and taking care of their family was that they felt like they needed to cook and just opening a box and putting water in, they weren't satisfied because they don't feel like they were cooking. So they actually changed the recipes for the box mixes so that you have to crack an egg and add oil. And the act of cracking an egg made people feel like they were cooking. <laughs> and thank goodness the box cake and brownie mix industry was saved. So it, it, again, I, I'm just curious, you're all up here because all of your companies reside online and you all have a tech aspect to it. You reside online, maybe there's an app, you know, you're ordering. That's the sort of tech future part. Um, but again, are, are we, are you, you know, is this, is the internet and the app store just the new kiosk or newsstand or something like that? Is it, are you really futuristic or are you tech enabled or? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think about future, not necessarily, future isn't always synonymous with just technology. I think about how does technology empower people to really, um, you know, get the best out of them. So, you know, we can, we call our restaurant owners are really the makers are very talented they have a they have a craft and they're amazing at it the question is how do we enable them to um to do that much better and how does technology serve as a platform to elevate that real authentic craft not necessarily just simply elevate you know technology in a sense so the future for us uh we're we're building technology in a platform so that makers can make, obviously, and focus most of their time, and if not all of their time, on making amazing, authentic, in our case, pizza-centric uh, cuisine. But they, they could also uh, make that in a much more valuable way. So to give you an example, before we started, uh, you know, the pizza industry has about, uh, sorry, the U.S. has about 55,000 small business pizza shops and another 20,000 big chain pizzerias. Well, the big chain restaurants who are just really homogenous and um, non-authentic, one of the advantages that they have is that they work together. So Domino's, as an example, is a franchise system, and they work together in order to make sure that they leverage economies of scale to drive better prices uh, and a more, you know, a, a better uh, user experience. Uh, and so our, my question from day one, and I have over 30 family and friends that own pizza shops, it's one of the reasons why I started the business, was, well, why can't the, the authentic local small businesses have that same advantage? And so the future for us is all about creating these communities and these platforms that allow authentic sole proprietor makers to uh, make an amazing living 
doing what they love, and at the same time, leveraging the economies of scale to pass that value back to the customer. So one of the things, I mean, in Manhattan, especially, a large pizza is like $24. That's crazy, to me, at least. I mean, it's a, it's a value product that's supposed to really you know, bring families together. And you look at Domino's, they haven't raised their prices in 12 years because they're leveraging technology to make their businesses more efficient and they're passing that efficiency in the form of value to the end consumer. So the future for us is how do you create platforms and communities where authentic local makers get that same playing field? Uh, so how do we level the playing field in order to make sure that they're a successful and then as a result, eaters can have a much better experience, a much more authentic pizza night. So in many ways, you're bringing the independent restaurant owner into the future with technology. There's a reason why people are successful at their businesses, because they're good at the thing that they do. You're, the companies that you work with are probably successful because they make pizza really well. Yeah. Not I mean, I, build websites, not build apps, not do customer data marketing, not you know do all of those kinds of things. And if you're, you know, very good in one skill, it's very difficult and probably very rare that you're going to be talented at another. That's yeah, so diamond. Yeah, exactly. Available. I mean, they don't have the time, they don't have the know-how. I mean, go ask Gino at the corner pizza shop if they know what you know data science is. And it's not their fault. It's just their focus. One hundred percent of the time needs to be on the product and servicing the customer. Uh, and we allow them to do that. And eventually, it, we're making it really, really easy to just open up a pizza shop. And we have all the data in terms of what they should be selling uh, and what consumers and eaters want. Uh, and then we want to really champion and, and you know, empower makers who make really unique things. And if we learn that those things perform really well with eaters, then why not educate other people in other markets to do the same? Like Joe's Pizza across the street is not competing with you know home slice pizza in Austin, Texas, and so how do you transfer that and uh, tr- you know basically create a really authentic, rich pizza experience across the world? Across the world, okay. So technology is the means to the end. It's building the community. Technology, Food Fifty Two, one of the hallmarks of it really is the community, and building that community would not have been possible without technology. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the internet is great for that specifically to bring people together around a shared around a shared idea or interest. It's been interesting. Oh, here we go. It's been interesting to see that evolve over time too, because originally when we launched ten years ago, that experience was on the website on food52.com, and then as social media platforms began to emerge, right now Instagram is like our our biggest channel. So even that idea of how we define community has changed. Well, desktop was kind of the only game 10 yeah, years ago. Yeah, yeah. Really? I yeah. mean, 10 years for the iPhone. Yes, Can we exactly. remember what it was like 10 years ago when you just had your computer or you had your notebook and that was it? I remember. And then you had a flip phone? Who had a flip phone? <laughs> Who wants to go back to a flip phone? Anybody? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah they are just, coming back. Just, just as a side note, they are coming back. Yeah. They absolutely are. Um, I'm going to digress just very quickly. At the beginning of my show, I ask all my guests, what's your favorite app? Because everybody has one, and it's a nice icebreaker, and you learn a little bit about people when they tell you what their favorite app is. And I always ask my engineer. So last year, I had a new engineer. His name is Noam. And I said, Noam, do you have an app that you really like that you can tell us about right now? And Noam didn't have an app because he has a flip phone. And he's never had a smartphone. He's been on a flip phone the whole time. So it wasn't like he went to the smartphone, went over the edge and had to pull himself back with a flip phone. He's had a flip phone the whole time and I was just fascinated by it. And I would ask him at the beginning of every show and he would say the same thing. And so I did an entire episode with him called The Flip Phone Life, and we just talked about what it was like being alive in the world today and a, and a person who works in media and online and is in New York City and has a flip phone. It was kind of fascinating. And the only thing that he said he really couldn't do is rent one of the Go bikes in San Francisco because you need to unlock the bike with a code that gets sent to you via something via the app. And that was the only thing that he couldn't do with his phone. So... It's just a sidebar. Anybody who's contemplating making the switch. Yeah. 
So back then it was really desktop, so it's yeah. evolved. How much has the community evolved with, in parallel with the social media and the apps and the technology? Yeah, you know, we, we've really seen, I won't, I won't say division, but there's definitely different lanes mm -hmm. between the site audience who comments and is very active and then against the folks on Instagram. It's just like a different dynamic, and we really see them as like different communities, because I mean, we don't know exactly what the overlap is, but from the tone and the, and the level of engagement, we know it's different, and the site folks are, are really, they have, a lot of them have relationships with one another, like, you know, they've had meetups. It's a, it's a very different feel than like two strangers on Instagram that probably aren't gonna arrange a meetup. I mean, I don't know, maybe. I, I don't know their life, but uh, it's just, it's a, they're more so interacting with us and interacting with the content, whereas on the site, people are still interacting with one another and having these conversations. Um, we have sort of uh, an element of our site that's been around for a while where people can earn badges, where you're like, uh, you know, Molly is an expert baker, et cetera. That's kind of... Um, we're not really giving out badges that much anymore because we're seeing that people, as technology has shifted and people aren't interacting in that same way, but that was something that held great value. You were just not an anonymous you know, avatar in the Food52 community. You had a badge that said you were asking me questions about poultry or whatever the case may be. So it's been interesting. And also just Instagram, you know, the we were talking a little bit about influencers and just the commodification of people's lifestyles <laughs> and how much... Yeah, it's the gamification of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kotbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. MealPal is thinking about going to one technology. Are you on desktop also, but you're going to phase that out and go to app? Was that right? Uh, no, we actually have a desktop mobile web and iOS and Android apps. Um, the new technology that we launched recently is actually um, a way to solve the pickup uh, problem. So customers, they reserve their meal online in advance, and they go to the restaurant, and they can skip the line to pick up their meal. In the past, um, we would send our restaurant partners a list of all of the customer names who were going to pick it up that day. Um, and it was a bit onerous, because the restaurants would have to check off each name. And it's very low-tech, because it's just paper. But restaurants are also pretty low-tech. So what we did was we rolled out with QR codes, where um, it's basically just a QR code um, sign. And the customer, they scan it with their phone, and they can pick up their meal. So it doesn't waste any time on the restaurant service side, uh, and it saves a lot of time on the customer side. So any new tech we think about has to be beneficial for either the restaurant partner or the customer, or, or ideally both in this case. Did your QR code come before or after the Whole Foods Amazon QR code blanketed the world? Because um, that I, was really, for me, last year, the first time that the QR code really came out in full force for the consumer food market. It, How many people use that when they go shopping? 
Yeah? Yeah. How many other QR codes do you use? Any? Tickets. Oh, yeah. Okay. There you go. Excellent. $5 Tuesdays? Oh, okay. Five, $5 Tuesday is the AMC Stubbs movie thing. You $5 Tuesdays? Yeah. Ah, outside the United States. Yeah, we right? actually we actually launched it first when we launched Singapore last July, and we saw it was doing really well. So we rolled it out to the U.S. Um, and customers were able to adopt. Um, and in the future, we see like potential opportunity as U.S. customers get more accustomed to QR codes, we could give like an offer to non-customers or give some sort of extra perk. Or if if a customer goes to a restaurant ten times, maybe we'll give them some special. Drink or right. something. Right now we get those offers via text messages typically, right? At least I do. Well, there's a big difference between technology outside the United States and technology inside the United States. Very different. Um, very different. How much of what the businesses are about today, certainly your business, Ilar, how much of it comes down to marketing? How much of it comes down to the internet is just simply the new phone book, the new yellow pages, the new newsstand, the new town square. Um, I think, have we passed the stage where it's like, wow, new technology, or is it just simply, if you're not doing business online, you're probably not going to be doing business? Um, yeah, I mean, we're not necessarily uh, a marketing-centric business, actually. We have an amazing marketing team, so our chief customer officer was a longtime chief marketing officer at Seamless. In fact, he was there for seven years. And, and our team in general has, has those roots. But the thing that really attracted them to Slice is the fact that our business model is actually the opposite of that. So um, we, we fed over 3 million uh, consumers in 2018. 92% of them were just organic customers. So we only, you know, we only acquired through paid marketing only 8% of our, of our buyers. Um, I think marketing uh, again it's 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 valuable once you unlock uh, a certain you know growth uh, opportunity and you want to make sure that you tell your story to the world in a much faster way but uh, at our stage and and the way we grow is really through the relationships that we have with the small businesses so the the thing that really helped me scale the business and just 30 second background I started in 2010 uh, originally, we, won't, we were known as MyPizza.com. I bootstrapped the company for six years with a team of three people, and we got to $40 million in, GM, in sales in 2015, working with 3,000 restaurants, and I was operating out of a pizzeria in Staten Island, New York, which is where I still live. And um, we were able to do that because the 3,000 pizza restaurants that we worked with are, are true partners. And there's already transactions happening within these restaurants. So the small, biz small business pizza segment in the U.S. is $27 billion a year. That's how much money will be spent at pizzerias that are not big chains this year in the U.S. alone. And 95-plus percent of that is offline. It's people either calling or they're searching the pizzeria online, and they're not finding anything because the pizzeria is not really, they don't have a website, they're not published on Google, Facebook, etc. And so we become the restaurant's digital partner. We handle their entire digital business from A to Z. And we do it in a managed way. We don't sell them a SaaS product, like we don't sell them the software and then expect them to use that to change their business. It's not possible. That's like, you know, the analogy I use is, it's like giving a fishing rod to someone who's never fished before and then telling them to win the most intense fishing competition on the planet against a dominoes. Um, so we don't expect that to happen. So we do the fishing for them. Um, so through those partnerships, through those relationships, we're able to then eventually shift these traditionally offline businesses to digital. And when you do that, magic happens. Consumers have a much better experience. They get much more value. So over 5,000 of our restaurants actually offer anywhere from 5 to 20% off in, perpet in perpetuity. So if you open the Slice app tonight and you scroll and you see all those discounts, that's the pizzeria offering you that discount to shop on Slice. Why? Because they don't have to spend all this money to answer the phone 
on the other side. They don't have to worry about all these mistakes that could happen when you're calling and it's like a hectic environment. And they don't have to spend anything on marketing or, or you know, you know, buyer demand generation. So that is really uh, how we you know, just kind of feed that flywheel. And they're also not paying you a percentage finder's fee like Seamless. Right, Apple. they're not paying us 20 or 35% so per order. The 25% that would have gone to Seamless exactly. is actually going back to the consumer. Exactly. And what we've done is now we've taken uh, all of these restaurants and we've partnered with the largest pizza box manufacturer in the country. And so we went to them and said, hey, we have 11,000 stores. We can bring that buying power to you. What can you do for the restaurants? And so they've discounted the price of a pizza box by 20%. So now, again, all of that is with the sole purpose of passing value, convenience, uh, and really just authentic food to the consumer. It's all about the customer. But these owners don't know that. When you call a pizzeria and you order over the phone, there's no feedback loop. No one ever asks you if your experience was great. And you shouldn't get upset when it's not the next time because... There's no way for the restaurant to know that. So when you close that loop, you just get a really magical experience. So for Jennifer and Eric, you are two, the, really the only two companies on this panel who come from a really well-established legacy brand in Martha Stewart. And Jennifer, you specifically have come through print into digital now. How different is the feedback that you get today being online versus when you were putting out a print magazine or you had to interact with people because your companies and point of view predate even the iPhone and the internet and those kinds of things. Yeah, I can tell you, um, you know, I, I was, I worked with Martha Stewart for 14 years before leaving to, to start Marley Spoon and uh, so I, I was editorial director of all the food content there and Really, we were creating food almost for ourselves. We had very little feedback from our, from our readers. I mean, we, we kind of knew what they liked. I mean, we knew what the brand was, so we created food for the brand. Um, extremely different. At Marley Spoon, we know exactly what our customers like and don't like, what they want, what they're ordering. I mean, that amount of data that we have and how we use that data to keep pleasing our customers and to be able to keep them coming back because we're creating the kinds of food that they, we, we know that they like and continue to order, um, it, we can get very, very focused and specific. Um, it's a complete game changer. Good game changer, bad game changer, or just different? Um, I, think it's, I think it's good. I, I kind of laugh when I think about how we came up with food for the magazines before because it, it felt very selfish. You know, now I think about it and, you know, it, we really, I, I, it, I think about how we developed food and it really was what we wanted to cook, you know, like as if we were cooking for each other in the test kitchen. Um, and here we're, we're still cooking and developing wonderful recipes, but it's, it's knowing what people want to cook. So it's just, it's a little bit more satisfying because you know, you know, we'll often say, oh, people are going to love that dish, whatever it is, you know, because we know they've liked something like it in the past. So we're, you know, reaching out to them with something similar but different and keep them interested in the food, the kinds of food that they like. But I, I also find, though, that sometimes too much customer data and input can be a bit paralyzing and you end up, I mean, everyone theoretically could have access to that information. You sort of end up with, uh, middle ground or kind of vanilla products or experiences that are just kind of trying to please the average rather than, you know, having a point of view, making what you as a customer would want to eat or, or see. Um, and, you know, some might like that and some don't, but at least there's kind of some imagination and intuition. I feel like we veered a bit too much to the uh, allowing data to be making the decision for us rather than as one of many inputs into the decision. Data is the big thing nowadays, isn't it? And I mean, data has always been important, but it's sort of at an all-time high. How many people read the article or heard about the article in the New York Times a couple weeks ago about data tracking, tracking your location? Yeah, I don't see a lot of hands. 
the, the woman who, who was, had like 2,000 data endpoints of her day? Yes, with the interactive map, yeah. Absolutely fascinating. The, the gist of it was, when you download different things and you say, let it have access to your data, primarily apps, some of them not necessarily location or navigation based, it'll ping you throughout the course of the day and it'll make a note of where you are. And the companies keep this data and then they use it because it's valuable, maybe they sell it. But it's anonymous, so it's not a name, everyone's a number. But the specificity of where a person goes, if you ping a person's location a thousand times a day, you see that this person left their home and went to their job at the nuclear power plant and then they went to the grocery store and then they went to the doctor's office and then they went back home and then they went here and then they went there and that the anonymity wasn't sufficient because the data was so precise. And it's been going on and on and nobody really notices or realizes it and it's just, it's just a fascinating thing. So I would be curious to know and maybe we can have people answer questions also People want what they want now, for sure, and part of internet and app culture is giving people exactly what they want more and more so. What is the breakpoint you think of having too much data? And what is the breakpoint for the audience of people of how much data people have about you now? Well, a lot of data doesn't mean it's all good data, or it, and nor does it mean that you know what to do with it. <laughs> or how to analyze it properly or use it properly. Um, so, you know, we, we try to be as transparent as possible. When you're signing up for our product, it's very obvious what data you're submitting, the name of your dog, the breed, the weight, um, activity level issues. Um, and we like to think that we can then use that uh, to surface, you know, interesting products or solutions uh, that can help your dog with a particular issue or, or address a certain need. So. I think when it's when it's transparent um, and clear what it's being used for and is is adding some sort of value, whether it's entertainment or utility or, or whatever, um, I think it come it can come in handy. But still, you know, even if even if I know exactly who the person is and where to reach them and with what message, that doesn't necessarily tell me you know what that piece of creative is or or how that message is articulated and. Uh, I think that's where there's still a lot of room for, for intuition and uh, creativity and, um, you know, not, not just regurgitating back what you've heard from a customer, but um, pushing them a little bit and, and seeing what resonates. Yeah, I just wanted to add that I, I could... The data that we get um, about what customers like, what they want to be cooking, that probably informs about 50% of our menu. And then in a given week, and then the rest is that room for creativity, which is still really important because they may have, you know, loved ravioli for six weeks straight, and now they're sick of it, and they want something else. So we have to keep pushing, and we have to keep um, offering new things and new cuisines, and it's just the data will never be right all the time, you know, forevermore. It's just going to keep evolving. Oh, yeah, exactly. I was going to add at Food 52, we really think of it as being data guided. So similarly, like, you know, people will tell you what they want, and it doesn't have to be as nefarious as uh, looking at their location everywhere. I don't know. I mean, I'm a digital marketer, and even I don't think I want to know that much. It may not help me sell you something better if I know uh, everywhere you've been that particular day. Um, we're, we launched a new product line, a new kitchen and home product line called 5.2, and it's actually all crowdsourced with community input, but our design authority and point of view came from where we thought we would start. So we started with a cutting board, and then we have this survey where we ask people particular questions about features that they would that were important to them. Um, and then in the open-ended comment section, we actually learned new things. I was telling these guys about, people wrote in about wanting a really deep juice groove along the sides so that when they're cutting fruit, they can pull it all together and for a sauce, and those are things that we wouldn't have thought of on our own. Um, so we're using their input in a very like transparent way, tell us how to make the perfect cutting board, then also our own point of view about selecting the product. It's not you know completely 
open-ended, but um, we've seen a really great response. And I mean, some of these surveys people have spent, like uh, our most recent survey had a completion time of eight to 10 minutes, which seems like a very long time on the internet to do <laughs> one thing. Um, so you're definitely tapping into a passionate group of people who want to be heard, but that's sort of, one of some of the ways that we think about being data guided and really tapping into the wisdom of the community and our own intuition to create better experiences. So, so much of what happens at your different companies is guided by consumer behavior. Is there a social media channel or a piece of technology or something that is on the horizon or on the table that is really guiding you right now or that you think is going to break and be big? I don't think when Instagram came out, people thought it was going to be quite as, as monolithic as it is. You know, likewise for the for the smartphone and all those different kinds of things. Twitter, I mean, who knew it would be presidential in the archives? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it, it predates. I mean, anything that people talk about or that you come into the office and someone says, oh, we got to keep an eye on this or maybe we should think about this piece of technology or this interactive thing. Yeah, I, I think um, just alternative ways of payments. I know we're past the Bitcoin bubble, but um, but there is definitely a future there around transactions. So, you know, one of the things that we, one of the pain points we want to solve for is how can we make sure that these small businesses get paid as fast as possible? Credit card companies hold their payments for three days, and sometimes it becomes four days or five days. And then that cash flow really, um, you know, kind of hurts their business. One, two, it's a tax. You're basically looking at anywhere from three to five percent tax on every single transaction. Whereas alternative payment methods, like you know, whether it's Bitcoin or some other um, some other brand, but the power that that has to transfer wealth, because that's what it is. I mean, currency is just about transferring wealth. The power that that has to uh, reduce the time and the, the amount of the, and the cost that it that it requires for you to transfer wealth is really really powerful. So we're you know really just keeping a very close track on that because we want to make sure that you know operating a small business uh, is as valuable as possible and removing some of these like middle middlemen or women taxes uh, is the first step towards that. I did a show probably in my first or second year, about, uh, it was like an internet system security boot camp. As we've been talking about, most people who do something very good, like a restaurant owner or a cook, they're very good at what they do, but they're not good at the rest of it. So when you opened a pizza shop or a restaurant or a business back in the olden days, you called the electric company, you turned on the lights, you, know, you had a bank account, you made sure you were in the phone book, and you started selling your products. Now, transactional things, your system, your internet, where the payment, which side of the firewall your payment token lies. Does anybody even know what that means, firewall payment token? If you have a Visa card, who has a Visa card for, a credit, for an airline company? Who has a Visa card for a sports team? Who has a Visa card for something else? A restaurant has to transact, you know, four or 500 different types of Visa transaction. It's not just one. So the whole financial scheme right now and structure, it's not, I mean, it's not just different monetary instruments like a Bitcoin, but it's also just transactional of what's happening on the day-to-day. -day. And what people may or may not realize is all of those transactions have data attached to it. So if you're a restaurant and you have your, your internet and your firewall and you're sending all your transactions to your bank, your bank is going to have all that data. But if you're processing all on your side of the wall and you have your payment token on your side, you get all that data. Whether you know what to do with it or not is a totally other question, but that's very interesting that you would say financial. I thought you were gonna say Zelly and Apple Pay and Venmo and those types of payments. Yeah, I mean, those things. things are already in place and those are, technology moves really fast without having, like those are table stakes today. Um, so we have Apple Pay, Google Pay, PayPal, uh, Venmo, et cetera. But yeah, this is more about you know just future technology. The payment space is definitely the the first one. I want to I want to say something about the data stuff, uh, data question. Um, 
for us, it's two parts. For me personally, it's and not not necessarily tied to slice. Is there's there's two components. One is the trade-off. So if you want something to be very convenient, then you got to share data. So in our case, as an example, we need your location in order to make sure that the pizza gets delivered. Um, and so you could always make the choice to just disable your location data on your phone. You're just not going to get the most convenient uh, life or what you what you've really become very accustomed to. But that is the freedom that every single person in this room has. And then the second component is, component is ethics. When you do choose to share your data with someone who is using it to make your life more convenient, the question is, are they being ethical with it? And that's that's the bigger question. And for a lot of people, like who here has the Robinhood app, as an example? A couple people. Why is it free for you? And that's a question I have for people. Why do you think it's free? Why do you think Facebook is free? People are upset that Facebook um, you know, is leveraging data to do all these things. That is their product. Yeah. They don't charge you to go on Facebook. They don't charge anybody to go on Facebook. Their product is data. You. The, you. you. The product is you. You are the product. Everybody so, who has a Facebook account, you're, their, you're the product that they make. Yeah, so I think there's... I'm less of a conspiracy theorist. I think it's just very obvious. It's a choice you can make. You could either leave your location data on or off, and you can always choose to stop doing business with someone that you think is unethical. That was the first half of the General Assembly panel for the future of food. Stay tuned next week for part two. If you are interested in finding out more about General Assembly or any of the companies on the panel, check out the show notes for this episode where we have information and social media handles. Come back and listen next week. Tech Bytes is broadcast on the Heritage Radio Network every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, your host and producer. The show is engineered by Jeet Paul. Our theme song, Nomad a CPU Track, is by DJ Uptown Nico. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.